Hello there, Terry here with another episode of the Animation Street Podcast. In this episode, I bring in one of the great masters of puppetry, stop motion, and special effects, and his name is Steven Kyoto. And he has touched more than 100 feature films, TV shows, short films, commercials, you name it. For instance, he animated the stop motion intro of the movie Elf. He also did the stop motion Simpsons couch gag. He worked on Tim Burton's Vincent. He was a puppeteer on the film Team America World Police. He produced the cult classics Killer Clowns from Outer Space and Freaked. He did the special effects for the Critters horror films. He worked on the Hunger Games. Ernest Scared Stupid. I don't even know where to stop. But before I get into today's episode, I'm really happy once again to be able to offer you something very special if you're listening, especially if you're into stop motion more. Actually, specifically, if you're in stop motion, my friend Mark Spess, who has actually done a podcast on claymation with me before, also owns an online stop motion supply shop where he ships out rigs and armatures and things like that to animators all over the world. And he offered to give anyone listening to this episode 10% off whenever they purchase any of his Bendy armatures, his Bendy rigs, or a copy of Stop Motion Pro software, which are perfect for any beginner to professional animator. And to get the discount, just head over to his website, animateclay.com, click on the store, and when you check out in the final step, use coupon code AIP, as in Animation Industry Podcast, uh, to do so. Plus, if you do, you are also supporting this podcast, which is great. Um, So that's animateclay.com, code AIP, and 10% off any of the Bendy armatures or rigs and Stop Motion Pro software. And of course, I'll include all this information in the description of this podcast. So now back to today's episode. So today with Steven, we are going to chat about how he was able to carve out his own path in the industry, plus his best advice for those looking to work on films and TV shows and animation and all that great stuff. And he has a really great perspective on things, especially for those looking to start their career in animation, because he also teaches at CalArts which is one of the top animation schools in the world. So, Stephen, thank you so much for taking the time to be on this podcast today. How are you? I'm doing fine, Terry, and thanks for asking me. It's going to be a pleasure talking to you. (laughs) Yeah, I'm really excited. Uh, You have a ton of projects that you've touched over the years, and a lot of them that I kind of grew up watching, too. Like, uh, you know, when I look at your IMDb, you've worked on, like, Team America Puppets. You've done for Critters, Ernest Scared Stupid, which... Uh, I have probably watched a hundred times when I was a kid. That's funny. Um, yeah, and you've been like a producer, writer, animator. Uh, I just want to know how you got started in this industry and ended up touching so many things. Oh, well, when I think back, and uh, what really got me started was my fascination for monster movies. You know, when I was young, very young, uh, I guess the image that really got me hooked was the original King Kong. Uh, the black and white version. I was living in the Bronx, New York, and uh, when I saw King Kong rampaging down those city streets, uh, tearing down the elevated train tracks, I mean, that was my neighborhood. I had those tracks down the block. So when I saw that image, it was real to me. It was fantasy with dinosaurs and then reality with New York City. And I, I'm telling you, I think it made an impression on me that stayed, stuck with me till today. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know how they did it. But I just was fascinated with those images. And I watched monster movies with my older brother, Charlie. And uh, yeah, we were big monster fans. Uh, And it was interesting. We knew there was a difference between, let's say, Godzilla and Rodan, those movies. There was something different about those monsters 
then let's say King Kong and Mighty Joe Young. But we didn't know what it was until much later. And well, the you, can see the, you can see the strings, uh, Rodin, that's holding up Rodin. So maybe that has to do it. <laughs> yeah. But the, but the performance was better. There was something, it just communicated emotions and the performance much more clearly with stop motion than, let's say, the rubber suits. Uh, but it was famous monsters of Filmland. You know that horror magazine, Forry Ackerman's magazine that he had? Yes, 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 yes. It gave us an insight into some of the behind the scenes. And we said, wow, people do this. And that, that was the... Uh, that was the beginning. So the spark was King Kong. And, and that's kind of, I mean, that movie sticks out in my mind too. And that, that and Sinbad, the Cyclops is like one of my favorites. Oh, um, yeah. yeah. So what, what propelled you to take this path? You know, it's very easy to end up at a day job, um, go to school for like something. What, what propelled you into taking stop motion as your career originally? Uh, you know, I have, I can't even describe it. It was just a passion, a passion for the imagery. Um, coming from New York, uh, there wasn't really a film industry that we could, uh, that we knew about. So we didn't know it was a career or an occupation. Uh, we started making films in our basement with eight millimeter cameras because we, it was a form of play for us. Yeah. Um, I mean, we would take army men and dinosaurs and army men and we just kind of, kind of, you know, played with them and then that's how we played and then when we had a camera we started animating them so again it was a way to tell stories never was an occupation because we didn't know you could make a living doing it and <laughs> still it's kind of hard to make a living doing it <laughs> right um so you you told me a little bit before this chat about how there's like not really a school for stop motion um and you ended up going to rochester for photography how did you how like that seems kind of like you're taking a lot of photos in stop motion. It seems like it would make a good fit, but what ended up happening that uh, made you kind of quit that program? It's interesting. I was really kind of, uh, I was maybe too focused. Uh, when I visited uh, RIT, um, I just fell in love with the equipment. They had all the movie equipment that I needed to make a film. And I think that's what it was more than the curriculum. I mean, they didn't even have a film major when I went there. I mean, it's a great school now. I wish I was going there now. But uh, so I took the photography classes, but I was kind of stubborn. I, I, I wanted to focus on animation and making films. So I didn't really focus on the curriculum. And I left school for a while. I came back, screwed up all of my educational credits and years. And it, it was a, a nightmare for me. But I made a film, a short film. Uh, called Cricket, and I it was entered in some kind of festival competition in the United States, and I won a Cine Golden Eagle, and then it was sent to uh, Cannes, and at the Cannes Film Festival, I won like a Young Director's Award for this film, so I was oh, getting recognized. Was, yeah, uh, so I was getting some recognition, but uh, I kind of got I, I kind of screwed myself up in my education. I should have focused on the photography classes because all of that information was applicable to stop motion and the motion picture work I would do later on. But I was so focused and dead set on, on animating and making a film that I kind of didn't take those classes. Instead, what I did was I made deals with the teachers to do an independent study. So instead of doing that curriculum, I would be making puppets for one class, my art class. I would be doing uh, animating and doing photography for my animated film for my photojournalism class and my color photography class. But I didn't take the class. So I learned a lot about stop motion, but I didn't learn anything about photography. <laughs> That's that's kind of impressive that your your props let you do that. Um, can I find this film somewhere, Cricket? 
Is it, is um, it bouncing around the internet these days? No, no. It actually got distributed by the national, uh, like a, nah, what was it? Uh, some film company distributed huh. it to libraries. When it was a 16 millimeter film, they used to distribute them to libraries years ago. Um, I think RIT has a copy of it now. Man, it'd be fun to go and get that and put it on uh, on YouTube or something, just to see what what's going on there. You know, I think I, I have a copy. I know what happened to it. It's uh, it was it was filmed on ECO, an old reversal film, and the prints I had turned red. They uh, they lost all the color, so all the color is whacked. Um, and what I did was I contacted RIT and I had them digitize it for me and do the color correction, and okay. I. So I think there's a copy there. If I have one, maybe I'll put it on my Vimeo. Yeah, do it. I, it's not that good. <laughs> no, but that, that's what I, I love to see, kind of the early days of master animators and puppeteers and things. Um, I've talked to some people who like refuse to show their earlier work because they're embarrassed. But uh, I think it's great. And it's also inspirational to be like, oh, like I, I'm somewhat at this same level that this person who's now a master was when they were starting out, you know? Oh, well, I, that's good. Yeah, in fact, there are some of our films on, on YouTube. I think we have The Beast from the Egg, an uh -huh. epic film that we made back in 66 or 67. Uh, that sounds pretty funny. <laughs> Beast from the Egg. I'm going to check that out, too. So um, once you finished this film, how did you, what was your first gig, like professional gig, that kind of launched your career in this? Well, it didn't launch. I, I guess I launched my career back in New York. I mean, uh, recently came from the Bronx and settled in Long Island and that when I went to school. When I went back to New York, um, I started doing commercial work in, in the city. And it was interesting. I didn't really like doing commercials. All of my life up to that point, I had been doing my own work, tell, you know, telling stories, really, you know, having an idea and then working with my brothers to to kind of produce the film in our own little tiny production way. So then going to New York, we, I was, we were doing miniature books, selling soap and doing commercial work. And it just wasn't really fulfilling for me. I just didn't like it. Yeah. But, but a, 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 a peer of mine who went to RIT turned me on to a studio that was uh, starting up in Washington, D.C., of all places. Um, and it was a company called Stomar. And they were doing clay animation. So I went from New York to Washington. Actually, the studio was in Arlington, Virginia. I lived in Washington. And uh, we were doing clay animation, at first for commercials and some industrial films. But then later on, we produced the, really the first clay animated feature film. Uh, we did that in 78, 79. And it was uh, based on Walt Kelly's Pogo comic strip. I don't know if people remember that. Mm, was, I'll have yeah. to look it up. It was great. Walt Kelly was uh, a former Disney animator, and he started a cartoon script for the New York Daily News and syndicated around the country about Pogo. He was a possum living in Okefenokee Swamp with his critter friends. Really great, beautiful, beautiful artwork, very political. Um, and our, our producer, Mark Chinoy, and uh, our other producer, Kerry Stoll, they got um, the rights to produce uh, an animated feature. Oh, wow. Yeah, I'm looking up right now. I've actually never come across this before, and I'm surprised I haven't. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, it, was, it was groundbreaking for the time. I mean, Will Vinton had been doing his style of clay animation. It was very textural, kind of showed the technique. You could see fingerprints. Yeah. 
But we, we uh, approach it differently. We want to kind of disguise the technique or the material and just use it for the movement. So we smoothed out all of the characters and we made it look like it was some kind of flexible material, unlike clay and uh, very sophisticated. It was flexible clay, hard clay. Um, yeah, yeah. So we, uh, I worked with Selby Kelly, uh, Walt Kelly's widow, about the character design. So we whipped up some character designs, created them in clay, and then my brother Charlie, who was working at ABC News in Manhattan, um, he came down and worked as our production designer. And then he translated all of Walt Kelly's Okefenokee Swamp uh, locations, and we built sets. So at one point, we had seven stages operating, producing about 10 seconds a day. We were producing about a minute of animation a week on seven stages. It's quite an operation, very unique for that uh, that community. I mean, Washington DC was really about politics, lawyers and uh, accountants. And here we were a bunch of artists making a film and so many people who are working in today's industry started with us back then. Uh, That's because yeah. the talent pool was just artists, people who had never done stop motion. So we pulled in artists and painters and sculptors and taught them the technique. And there were people like myself who had played and experimented with animation, but never did anything professionally. And we got them and we all learned together. We, we started, we made the film, it's done. It was like an hour and a half of stop motion. So I'm, I'm gonna go watch this afterwards, but if you were learning on the job kind of, is, did, it, did the animation and stuff get better as the film goes on? Can you see it progress? Oh yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And people had different strengths and weaknesses. And I was, I was the animation director. So I was like mm, coordinating who was doing what shot. And that, that was kind of cool. Uh, and I was animating as well, which is kind of a tough thing I see nowadays. When we hire an animation director, they don't animate. They just kind of coordinate all the, all the, the animators and the workflow. Uh, but doing both was really kind of challenging. But a lot of cool people came from that. I mean, uh, one of the early animators was like a Stephen Oakes. Steve Oakes, who uh, came from, I think, Maryland. Uh, he worked with us. And he later on went up to New York and uh, started what was it called? Broadcast Arts in the early 80s. And then it went, morphed into Curious Pictures. And he had a, an incredible career doing commercial work. And then my brother and I, we went to California after that film wrapped. And we started our company out in LA. So have you ever, have you ever gone back to commercial work? Uh, or have you just stayed in film and movies and things since then? Well, in order to stay alive in the business, you have to do whatever you can. So we do, we do a lot of commercial work. And it's interesting, it, uh, they're shorter term projects. And I think bang for the buck, you make more on a commercial for the same work you do for a, a motion picture. It's just, a, it's just a different kind of pay rate. But we've done some really great things. Uh, in fact, one of the highlights is uh, a couple of noodle soup commercials we did for uh, the Japanese market. Unfortunately, they weren't shown in the US, but we won two Cannes Films uh, Lion Awards for those two years in a row. And it's a prehistoric caveman hunting uh, mammals. I've seen those, yeah. <laughs> it was, that's, it, that's a highlight. We love doing those commercials. It was like four or five years worth of work. Oh my uh, we did like two, about two or four a year of five years. It was great. They were fun. They were dying, they were monsters. So it was like, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, they're, they're like very unique in their style too. And uh, very well done. I remember I found them like on some random like YouTube channel way back. <laughs> oh yeah, they're, they're pretty cool. And again, what the animators that work with us on that were some of the animators we started out with 
Oh, nice. In, uh, in D.C. Kim Blanchett worked on that. And uh, Kent Burton, he also worked on it. And Justin Cohn, he was building the armatures for it. And these are guys that we worked with back on Pogo. Wow. Um, so, well, maybe you could just kind of give some of the highlights of your career over the years. Like, what is what, what have you been your favorite times um, producing stuff? Um, like behind the scenes type stuff. I mean, coming up with the idea. I mean, that's great. You know, it, it's twofold. Um, the contract work has its own kind of highlights. I mean, meeting creative people and being inspired by other people's visions is really great. Like um, a highlight for me was working uh, with Tim Burton on Vincent. Hmm. Um, that sort of how we met is just so convoluted. I was, but it was, that's a whole long story. But working on Vincent was really great. I mean, when I went to the, to the Disney studios and met Rick Heinrichs and Tim, I was on the Disney lot and it was really kind of cool. And we went upstairs and they showed me the storyboards for Vincent. And, he, and it was really, at the, in the beginning, it was a storybook that he wanted to do. So like an Edward Gorey style story, both in its illustration style and its storytelling. Uh, um, and it was great when he went through it and it was wonderful. And then they had a library. You could see any film you want. So we went upstairs and he showed us um, Sterevich's, um, oh, what film was that? Uh, oh, the, the, the Devil's Ball is a sequence in it. Um, uh, what's the name of that film? I don't have the tip of my tongue. But, but he said, this is what I want to do. He wanted to do it black and white. He wanted this kind of dark style of, of cinematography, almost noir. And it was great. It was just great. To, um, I had a great time. And to this day, it's one of the nicest projects I've worked on. Uh, the design is fantastic. And the story is really heartfelt and true. And uh, it's, it's Tim. Yeah. Did you, were you an animator or you produced the puppets? Like what was your specific role at the end of the day on that? Well, specifically I was the animator. Yeah. And then because at that time, you know, they were kind of uh, new to doing stop motion. I had a little bit more experience. I had just come off of Pogo. Yeah. So I, I had a lot of systems and a lot of techniques to kind of bring to the table. So I was credited as an, uh, a technical director, not an animation director. Tim was really directing all of that. And Rick was like, I guess he built everything. He built the puppets. He built the sets along with Tim. They, yeah, it was just like a, a, team, a little team of people making the film. And I brought in Victor Abdoloff. He was our DP on Pogo. So I got him to come from the East Coast. I brought him over to, to California, and he was our DP on the project. And Chris Roth, the guy that, that hooked me up to Stomar in D.C. in the first place, he ended up being our editor. So again, you kind of meet these people and you kind of work well with them and you kind of continue working with that team. But it was Is it amazing deal. to be able to call up all your friends and be like, hey, I got a, I got a new project. Come on, come on, oh, fly down and let's work together. <laughs> it is great. It is great. Uh, yeah, the people you can rely on, people that you know a lot about. Uh, because when you bring in new people, it's great. But it's sort of like working on a pilot. You know, you, you're bringing all this diverse group of people with their own kind of points of view together and you've got to produce something in a, in a short period of time. So it's not just making a film, but you actually have to learn how to work with people. And uh, so it's, that's kind of tough. So bringing in people that you have familiarity with in a, in a past and a method of you know, communicating uh, is always best. I'm, I'm just curious, I have to ask, is Tim Burton as quirky as he is in real life as his films are and his film style is? Well, define quirky. Yeah, he's I, a oh, character. What, what, is your, what was your experience working with him? <laughs> what's, he, what's he like? I think he was great. He talks with his hands. He talks like this. You would think he's Italian the way he talks. Yeah. And he's very expressive. 
and 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 I think the the motivations for all his in, uh, incredible drawings is really really deep and heartfelt. Um, and he did something really great for me as an animator. Um, he was a two D animator at Cal Arts, and so he you know it's his background. And he would do these key drawings of Vincent in one pose, and then another pose, and then another pose, and kind of block out the key poses that he wanted to see in one of the in the scenes in Vincent. Then he and I would discuss the timing, how many frames would be for here and this and that. And it was interesting that uh, coming from 2D, he can go from one position to the next in one frame. And in stop motion, you have to kind of flesh it out a little bit more, a few more in-betweens to get the same kind of snap and still kind of carry the motion. So that was the conversations we had, just working out that. And that was the most detailed instruction that I've ever had with, an, uh, with a director as an animator, actually blocking out because he saw exactly what he wanted. He saw pose to pose what he wanted um, for the film. It was great. Nice. And you what he was trying to do was, what he was trying to do was really cool too. It was a, uh, a mixture of 2D, 3D. It was very graphic and it's set building. And uh, yet we had a three dimensional character and it was so interesting the way the character stood up against the backgrounds. It was, uh, again, to this day, it's one of the nicest films I've worked on. Nice. Nice. Um, you mentioned something about how it's, almost like easier to work with people you've already worked with rather than bring somebody new into the mix. Um, and, and that had me thinking like, is that like, if I'm new and I want to break in, is there kind of something I should know about working with a team that's already got a cohesive um, style going on, like that I need to be aware of if I want to continue working, you know? Well, well you, 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 you try to be as cooperative as you can. You try to jump on board the, the, um, the train, you know, the train of thought that people are going for. Um, there's something, nothing you can fake, either you're with it or you're not. Uh, and I think ideas that you, uh, that you might put forth, if it builds and things work out, then that's the kind of connections that stay. Uh, if you're not, not with it creatively, I guess it won't. Now, you'll, you'll meet people that you just kind of bond with, that, that kind, of, kind of sync up. I mean, you look at Rick and Tim, I mean, it really is a team. Um, you know, uh, Tim would draw his, his sketches that were very, very, uh, very expressive in their simplicity. And then Rick would then translate that into 3D. And it was a really great translation. I mean, the quirkiness of the characters wasn't lost. Uh, and yet it was a, a completely different rendering of the ideas and the concept and the characters. Uh, it was really great. So that's a team. And I think if you see it over their career, Rick went on to work on his own as a production designer, won an Academy Award, and yet the guys still back and forth to go together because I think it is a really a solid team. So, nice. uh, yeah, yeah, so, so that's what you do. You find people that you that you have a, a common common expression with, common ground, and you kind of feed off each other. Is is that like you and your brother? Uh, yeah, it's interesting with us. It's um. Because we're brothers, we have a common background. So our, our language, our communication, and the things that inspired us are pretty much the same. Not exactly the same. We have, uh, there are variations. There is a lot of uh, difference between us. But I think the commonality of the language and our background brings us together. And we do different things. Uh, my brother Charlie is an illustrator. So he ends up doing character design in 2D and production design as well. Uh, my younger brother Edward, in the early days of our our stop motion company or our, our effects company he would do mechanic mechanical design and, and uh, more hardcore stuff and the business he was the guy that really kind of anchored the, the business side of the company 
And then I was like somewhere in the middle. Uh, I, came up, I came up with a lot of the ideas of what we want to do, the ideas that we actually end up doing. I'm not really a writer, but I end up writing. And I end up directing. So I, I kind of coordinate all the different activities towards that common vision of producing. So, so, so we all have our different departments and we work together collectively for the, that vision. So I know you're also like insanely busy all the time and you mentioned that you're just taking a lot of like you have to take a lot of projects to stay afloat kind of thing. How many different projects are you involved in at one time or over the year? Like um, you've also had a very long career too. So is are you always just like <laughs> booking stuff in or have you had periods of drought or? Oh, it's 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 been up and down. Yeah. It, it, and it's, it's something you have no control over. There was a time when we were working on we were co-producers on Land of the Lost, that Sid and Marty show. There was a revival in the 90s. The show originally aired in the 70s. We were fans of that, the dinosaur show. So in the 90s, we linked up with those guys that were reviving it for ABC, and we worked on the effects and got the co-producer credit working on the show with them. So we're working on that. Then we sold our own TV show to CBS called The Amazing Life Sea Monkeys. So we were executive producers on that while we were coordinating that. And then I think we had Ninja Turtles at the time. We were doing animatronic costumes for a, uh, a Saban show of Ninja Turtles. I think they were all at the same time. No, no, it wasn't that. It was Critters. No, that was it. We were doing Critters 3 and 4. So we had all of these things at the same time. And it was really an incredible year doing really cool stuff. But we were at, at yeah, we had like three different buildings that we were working out of at that time. And then the 90s came, CG came, and most of the work that we were doing in stop motion kind of went away. The, the new shiny toy was CG, and everybody wanted to gravitate to that technique, so it was like pretty thin. There was some work. I think we were doing a couple noodles, a couple noodle soup commercials then. How did, how, did you, how did you feel during that time? Like my first reaction was maybe I would be scared that my career is not going the way I want. Yeah, I don't know. It's something, it's, uh, we never really think of it for the money. It's really kind of dumb. Some people come out here because they want to make a lot of money. They want fame and fortune. They come to Los Angeles. And, yeah. and we just came here to make movies. We didn't, <laughs> we didn't really care about the money. And it's really funny. So we made movies. We don't make money. We just make movies. And other people who just want to make fame and fortune, they get fame and fortune. They make money. And I don't know what they do. But it never was the goal. And it never was the goal to even have a company. I, the last thing I wanted to have a company, I don't I, I, I have a business background, but it ended up that in order to do what I wanted to do, first we started in the garage of one of our, our houses that we were renting, and then we, we uh, moved into a loft downtown LA in the early 80s, and we started just doing stuff. We did our, our company logo was the first thing we produced as a company. It was uh, a New York City alley that the camera trucks down, and then a little punk rock dinosaur, a dinosaur with a mohawk comes out and he spray paints our name on a brick wall. And that was our company logo. Uh, and it won some awards at uh, some animation awards. And that started our company. Nice. So just producing work is what the key thing is. You produce work, you sit it out there, people respond to it. And that's how you get more work. Did you ever, did you ever have, um, did you ever butt heads with your brothers? Like you've kind of all been all in on this, you know? So did you somebody want to? 
You haven't heard the stories? Uh, no. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was like I mean, it's like the Warner Brothers. I heard you know, there's a story about one was chasing the other one around with a knife. I mean, it gets it gets. Uh, we talk to each other like you would not talk to any other associate. <laughs> would uh, so uh, no. It, we, some people refer to us as the Kyoto Brawlers. Um, coming from the East Coast, it's a way that we talk to each other and to other people that people find kind of offensive because we're just really direct and loud. So no, no, chairs have flung, been flung and, and things busted, but no, you know, it's just the way we get out some creative passions. We, we've calmed down a lot more now. I mean, those are like the early years when temperatures would really fly about. But I, but I mean, like one brother didn't be like, you know what, I'm going to go do my own thing. Uh, like I'm not in this anymore, you know? Did that ever happen? No, actually, I think we worked on our own stuff during it. Oh, okay. I mean, I would, I, I have ideas that I do, and I would say, you guys want to work on this, and if they weren't interested because they didn't think it was such a great idea, I would do it on my own. Okay. Same thing with them. Yeah, I think, um, yeah. Was yeah. there, so um, I'm just thinking, like, you've worked on all these big films. Was there ever, and, and your goal was just to make movies, which I love. Is Was there ever a moment where you felt like, you know, I've made it, like this is like I'm doing what I what I wanted to do and I, I'm like living, breathing it. Uh, yeah, kind of. As I get older, I look back and, you know, we might not have worked on the biggest blockbusters and made a ton of money. But when I look at the things I have worked on, it's been a, it's, it's a it's a great resume. I mean, working on Vincent, working with Tim, a fluke of just two people coming together and making something like that is a real highlight. And then working on something like Land of the Lost was pretty cool. And then doing Large Marge, of all things, for Pee-wee's Big Adventure. That's a highlight. I mean, people know that. And to be a, to be a part of the creation of that image is really kind of cool. And we've had, and when I look at my career, our career as Kyoto Brothers, we've worked on really cool things like Team America. That's, that's a, an iconic film in that we learned why people don't do marionette movies. They're impossible. <laughs> It's fucking impossible. That and, and then doing killer clowns is, is like, you know, to actually have an idea and say, oh, yeah, you know, clowns are kind of creepy. What can we do? And then make a film that, like, in a couple of weeks is going to be a horror haunt at Universal City in Orlando and Los Angeles. I mean, that's pretty cool. And, uh, and to do sea monkeys. I mean, everybody knows sea monkeys. I said, well, wouldn't it be great to do a TV show with sea monkeys? And we did it. We we did it with Howie Mandel, and we did it on CBS. So it's funny to have an idea and actually see it go to fruition and, 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 and see, see it on TV. And then I wrote a book with a friend of mine, Jim Strain, who wrote Jumanji, uh, called Alien Christmas. And now we're doing it as a holiday special for Netflix with John Favreau. So when I think back at, at those highlights of actually being part of the creative seed of creating something original, and then having it produced and having it then showcased, that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Very cool. Yeah. Well, I'm just enjoying listening to you talk about the highlights. Like, that's kind of the dream for me, just to do cool stuff and, you know, that's it. That's it. That's it. You just <laughs> want to do cool stuff. Yeah. And, and you, don't, I mean, you, don't like, even need, you don't need the big, big uh, showcase. Like, yeah, getting a theatrical release in 3,000 theaters and all that accolades is really kind of cool. But, you know, if you just make something and you 
nowadays you've got Vimeo, you've got the you've got the internet. You can get distribution. You can get feedback on your work without really going full the full uh, path of going through all the business crap to get it done in a big, big yeah. financial way. You can still get the satisfaction of creating something and getting some kind of feedback. Yeah. I guess I have a question though, because like for me. Uh, I told you a little bit about my story where I, I was into stop motion and then like I needed I needed some work. So I went to business school and now I realize that that's my passion. So I'm back in. I was always like I always just wanted to make cool stuff and like do my best. But how do you make the jump from like working on your own stuff to like what would your advice be to make the jump into doing commercial work or like working at a studio and what or something like that? Well, I mean, there's, there's thousands of ways to get into the studio, into the production. And it really is based on your, your core skills. If you're a writer, you start writing. You just write. Um, if you want to direct, I would say the best way to get into directing is writer-director. Me, is it, getting in as a director for me was a, a lot tougher because I would always have to link up with the writer. And sometimes they would give you a writer. And if you didn't sync up with the writer, it just, it, it's not the best thing. Um, a friend of mine, Mick Garris. Uh, he's uh, uh, works in the horror genre. Where has worked uh, adapted a lot of Stephen King's novels into television and motion pictures. He started as a, a writer. Actually, he started interviewing directors on his own cable TV show, and then he interviewed Steven Spielberg. And Steven noticed he was a writer, and then he gave Mick a job on um, Amazing Stories as a writer. And then I think he might have been a story editor. And then he got into directing. Because he was a writer. We worked with Mick on uh, Critters 2. I think that was his, not his first feature. I think he'd done a feature before, but I think it was his ma first major feature, I believe. I could be wrong. But Critters 2, uh, writer-director. So that, to me, is a great path. You have more control with more confidence in, in you as a, as, a, as a creator. But then there are other ways. Some people are just uh, like uh, Jim Cameron is an art director, worked as an art director. And then he was a production designer. And all of us who get into the industry, all of us want to make our own movies. Everybody. Yeah. The grips and the writers and the costumers. And, uh, and a lot of people, when you ask them, what do you want to do? They feel a little shy. Oh, they want to direct, but they say, oh, everybody wants to direct. But it's true. Everybody wants to direct. They do. Yeah. So do it. And in the meantime, what you do is you use your, your best talent, your most marketable talent to get into the industry. And you work your way through. People start to know you, you, you start networking, and you work your way through, and then you might meet a producer. And again, that's how we got Killer Clowns. We were working as a vendor effects company for Fairy Tale Theater, Shelley Duvall's Showtime show. Yeah. I watched that as a kid. <laughs> yeah, we, we made all the special props. Uh, and Fred Fuchs was the producer. So we knew Fred for a couple of years now, and Fred knew some people that had money that were funding uh, low-budget films for direct-to-video. This is in the 80s, when, uh, before Blockbuster. All this stuff was starting to happen on VHS. So he said, hey, do you guys have any ideas for a feature? And we had Killer Clowns from Outer Space. So Fred said, oh, well, we'll take you to this company and see, pitch it. So here we are, Terry, our first pitch to Transworld Entertainment. We, we had uh, like a one-page pitch. My brother Charlie did a poster, and I did a maquette of a clown with a puppet in his hand holding a ray gun. And we went in and we pitched it, and we sold it in the room. It was easy. We said, wow, this is really easy. We could do this again. We've never done it since. <laughs> but 
that's it. We, he bought it in the room. Uh, the guy said, uh, I think he bought it for the title. I don't think he knew what we were going to do, but Killer Clowns from Outer Space, he said, I can sell that. Just sounds, it just sounds like you want to watch it. <laughs> so, uh, okay. so we got it. $2 million to make our first movie. It was great. That's incredible. And I, I, like, I like what you said about uh, understanding your most marketable talent and like working your way through that and meeting people, but like holding on to the, to the dream. Cause I talk to a lot of my friends about this because like, you know, I have friends in business and stuff like that. And everybody, everybody has their, their dream on the side that they're not pursuing. Mm -hmm. Well, not everybody, but a lot of people have their dream on the side that they're not pursuing. Um, so it's, what you're saying is don't give up on that, keep that, but like use your most marketable skill to push you forward towards that goal, I guess. Yes, and and um, and actually, it's 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 a it's a soft recommendation. That's <laughs> I, I actually vacillate back and forth between these two. I teach stop motion up at Cal Arts here in California, and when the students are leaving, when they graduate, I give them that advice. Your most marketable skill is the best way to get into the industry, but then sometimes their passion might be not might not be their most marketable skills. You know, uh, so for them, I would say, well, look, if you want to direct, go out there as a director. Mm. You know, it, it might not be the work you've got might be not the best. But if you are passionate about that and this is what you want to focus on, you just do that. You go out there because you could get sidetracked. Let's say you're a sculptor and you want to direct. And that's actually it's my path. All right. To go back. My most marketable skill was being an animator and a sculptor. So my first jobs in, in Los Angeles was as a sculptor and an animator. And my directing career might not have been pursued or developed as quickly because I had this other way. But I had to make a living. And I could yeah. not imagine me at that point coming out here and saying, oh, I'm, an, I'm a director. I did have an animation director credit with that Pogo film, but nobody had seen it. It didn't get any real distribution. So it really was, yeah, what, what is that? Without yes. box office, it's nothing. It's not much of a calling card. So I wasn't able to really pursue that in the forefront to make money in the beginning. So I backed up on my, my skills. But through those skills of sculpting and being an animator, I was able to kind of navigate the industry, meet the right people that inevitably led me to directing some things. Um, so it, it, yeah, it's a soft kind of recommendation that goes back and forth. If you have a skill to get into the industry immediately, capitalize on that. But if you're passionate and just single-mindedly focused on one thing, there's nothing more powerful than that. But if you want to direct, I would say writer-director is probably the, a, a stronger way to approach that, where you're going in authoring the material. Even Spielberg, he started, he was writing things, you know. So he wrote Close Encounters. But then as even I found in my, in my career, I can write, but I wouldn't consider myself a writer. It's a very special talent. It's, it's a, a way you approach the way I am with, let's say, clay or with uh, animation performance. These guys are with words. And I realized the distinction, the difference between what the, the, my ability as a writer and people who really can write, use that as their expressive tool. So develop it, just do it. You know, if you want to write, write. If you want to direct, just make little films and direct. Every single thing you do, you get better and better and better at. It's that yeah. 10,000, yeah, the experience of 10,000 hours. hours. Yeah. yeah. So, so you've been uh, you've been teaching stop motion and you've been giving that advice. Can you think of any examples from students that you've seen who've who've uh, really gone on that path and made it? Um, they weren't my students, but uh, 
No, I mean, I've been teaching for 20 years now, and all of my students have made it, they have careers in the animation industry. Uh, there's one really brilliant uh, animator, Kike Rivera, a brilliant animator, does fantastic stuff. He's a, a designer, an animator, he's just brilliant. Um, Nick D'Agostino, another guy, these, these are up and coming talents that you're gonna see do really incredible stuff. Uh, and Siji, Siji Song, um, just wonderful, wonderful work. She has a film called Sister that has won a lot of awards. That's just incredible. Her, she has fabrication skills. Um, she builds the props and just the story is so heartfelt. It's just really wonderful. And then there's uh, Kirsten Lepore. I'm working yeah. with her. She's an animation director on a, on a film right now. Uh, I'll, be, I'll be working with her probably in January. And she's just uh, dynamite, extraordinary talent that uh, I think you'll see a lot more coming from her. And then there's a group of people, there's a company called Open the Portal in Los Angeles. David Braun is like the ringmaster of this group of talented people. Uh, Kong Min King, uh, uh, no, uh, Kong Min, oh boy, I'm so embarrassed now. Uh, uh, I, I, Kong Min Kim. It's, these guys are just so talented. Yeah. And you'll, you'll be seeing a lot of, a lot of their work. And these are guys that I, it's funny, at Cal Arch Meet, it attracts a lot of talent. And I think we have probably the best stop motion departments in all of the schools in the country. I mean, we have stages, motion control. Um, it's, it's really good. We teach fabrication, puppet fabrication. We teach art direction. We have cinematography and lighting classes. So it's a really a great playground for these guys to develop their skills. But quite honestly, they have the skill and talent. All I do is maybe mentor them, help guide them, introduce them to different things, but they are talented to start with. And, and it, it shows me every day I go there, these, these kids are brilliant. And in fact, what I get out of teaching is they inspire me. They remind me of why I got into the industry in the first place, because they're just so passionate about what they want to do. And you can get kind of cynical because of the business of our industry. Yeah. And you can ah, shit one of these things. So sometimes you got to do things for money because you've got overhead with your studio. And that kind of taints, you know, why you got into the business in the first place. But interacting with these talented people at CalArts really inspires me again to go out there and, and pursue my own voice and, and tell my story and create my own work. So you get back and forth. You've heard teaching, you get more than you put in. It's, it's kind of like that. It's quite an uh, incredible experience. So watch out for those kids, those, those, that kids, those guys, really talented group of people. Yeah, I wrote all I wrote all their names down. I'm gonna look them up. Uh, I'm very familiar with Kristen Lepore's work. I've been following her since she uh, did Story of America, uh, that that song. <laughs> it's all oh, 2D yeah. animated. And I actually had David Braun and um, uh, another one of his his coworkers, um, Barrett Slagle, on this podcast too. So yeah, they talked all about how they opened the studio and the work they're doing and where they're going next. Uh, they, they, they're great. It's to me, it's a, it's a great brain trust, creative brain trust here in LA, and it, it attracts great talent. And the stuff they're doing is wonderful. So I think they're gonna, they're gonna go far. They're gonna do everything they want to do. I'm, I'm kind of glad that you mentioned that sometimes it sucks to take, to take jobs. I feel like that's in any aspect of life. Like it's not always like you're living in a fantasy. But have you ever experienced uh, like a really discouraging time in your career, or like? 
intense burnout because you've worked on so many different things and I'm, I don't even like you said sometimes you got to just take jobs I don't even know what you've done for like half your career you know I've only seen the highlights so mm. well it, it, uh, how can I say there there are some some uh, jobs that you just don't really click with you know it's, it's just a job you're, you're making props you're making something or you're performing um, but what I do is I, I, I latch on to the one or two creative elements that inspire me. And I focus on that. So it's not the whole job. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of cool. And not, not that, uh, I, can't, I can't think of any job right now. I'm trying to think of a job that I didn't like, you know, that was really yeah. a pain in the ass. And I really can't think of one. Okay. Um, but it's interesting that there are some jobs that are, that open up other opportunities I never thought of. Like there was a, a Nickelodeon show called the Thundermans, a superhero family living in suburbia. And their mean, evil arch enemy was Dr. Colasso, and he was a rabbit. So it, it, I didn't really, I sculpted the rabbit. I had a very minor thing to do with the fabrication because we bring in experts in all the different fields. So we brought a mechanics expert. Um, uh, David Barrington Holt who used to work for the, the Jim Henson and the Muppets. He did all the mechanics. Uh, and then we had Deborah Galvez, she did the fur work uh, on it. So we made this beautiful animatronic puppet rabbit. And then I got to puppeteer it because as, a, as an animation director, I'm kind of into movement. So I kind of gave it some life with puppeteering. And we got the gig to perform on stage for the TV show, which is a whole other avenue that I'm not really an actor performer, but I could make, it, I could make it that rabbit come alive. So for four years, we were, I was like a puppeteer on a TV show. So, so like, it was a great, great opportunity. It's something that I had no idea I would ever do. Working on a TV show, puppeteering a rabbit. You never see me. I'm the guy underneath where, wherever the rabbit is. I'm under that. Oh my gosh! So, is it all, is it all like hydraulics and like strings and things? Uh, no, there's servos in the head to do all the facial animation. But it was a rod puppet, so underneath I would push this rod up, and I would have the rabbit sit up, go this way, move, move around. So it was like the the uh, the gross body movements the, the, that I would give the puppet, all the animation of the body. Um, not, that, you know, not in reference to a job I didn't like. It was a, a job that took me in a direction that I had never anticipated that was really enjoyable. So that's what you do. You get a job and you say, okay, well, this is a job. But then you find different niches that you can kind of excel or have some kind of you know, passion about and just explore that avenue because they're very complex and, and it involves a lot of different people. It's really an army of people that bring these characters alive, really. It's not just one person. Um, how do you end up getting all the connections for all these places? Like, do you just go somewhere, work, and then you meet people, and then that ends up giving you something else down the road? Have you that's ever, it. yeah. yeah. That's, that, that's it exactly. It was, I mean, let's say the Thundermans, that show, um, when we did our Sea Monkeys TV show, uh, we were working with Harry Mandel, and he brought in a, a line producer that he, that he introduced to us, and uh, Patty Gary Cox. And she, we worked with her on Sea Monkeys, and had puppets and had animation. Had, oh, it was a real, a real potpourri of special effects. And I think it was early in her career. It was like one of her first jobs. And then like 20 years later, maybe, yeah, maybe 20 years later, 15 years later, she's now a producer on the Thundermans. And 
they needed a puppet rabbit. And she goes, oh, I work with the Kyoto Brothers on Sea Monkeys. So that's it. There's a connection. Now, there was a long space in between, but that was it. And, and so that's the connections, Terry. It's just working in any capacity in the industry um, that you meet people and you get along with people. They see your work. They see how you are. And if they like you, they like your work. Then later on, that connection might pop up. Another really cool one. I mentioned we worked with on Land of the Lost. We hired a young cameraman, effects cameraman, Joe Bauer. And it was one of his first jobs working as a cameraman while we're shooting the animation in 35 millimeter in those days. Years later, he's working with John Favreau on Elf. John says, I want to do some stop motion. Bauer says, hey, I know the Kyoto brothers. They do this kind of stuff. And then Joe got us a gig with John. That gig led us to introducing John to Alien Christmas. So it is that kind of networking. Um, I could even go back even farther. It's a kind of a long story, but the way I met Tim Burton was really kind of convoluted. I was in New York working. Uh, yeah, yeah, the Pogo movie. And then we moved to California. I was unemployed for six months. Nobody knew me in LA. I had no connections. And I was just living off of the money that I made. I couldn't get a job. The first job I got in LA was in New York. Um, uh, Bob Grossman, a celebrated airbrush illustrator, he was doing a, an animated commercial. How did he get my name? I forget how he got my name, but in any event. So I went to New York to, uh, uh, to work with uh, Bob Grossman. And then when I went back to Los Angeles, I get a call from Rick Heinrichs. Two, it was like a mile away from where we were in Burbank. Bob Grossman recommended me because Rick was looking for somebody to animate Vincent. He knew Bob Grossman in New York. Bob Grossman said, oh, I just worked with Stephen Kyoto. I think he's on the West Coast. So Rick Heinrichs calls me from a recommendation in New York. And I was like a mile away from Disney Studios. And that's when I met Rick and Tim through Bob Grossman because I was unemployed in Los Angeles and got a job in New York. So all convoluted. So good work gets recognized and people see that, they remember you. And then when, you're, when a technique or something pops up, oh, I know, Terry, he does this. He's really good at this. Uh, yeah. Get him a call. See, that's something that I really have to, to learn because my career in business is the exact opposite of that. Oh, how? <laughs> it's, like, it's like you go to school, you get the internship, then you get the entry-level position, you work your way up, and then you use your resume to work at a different company. So for me, I went to business school, I interned three different large companies, then I started working for a vitamin company uh, downtown Toronto when I, when I graduated. Then I worked my way up there and then I worked for a software company being in like marketing content and SEO. And then like it's it's very like you're there for years, it's stable, uh, like you live in the same place. Like I was never opposed to like living a lifestyle where I'm jumping around. It's just when I graduated high school, I didn't even understand that I could do that because the only place that I went that I knew where studios were just had nothing. So it's like, well, I guess this isn't a thing. <laughs> well, it's funny. So you don't, it's, you don't, you don't do it purposely. No. I mean, it's, it's just a lifestyle. But it's interesting you mentioned stability. That's, what's, that's what you don't get here. It's, it's yeah. so unstable. Like, um, the, it's like musical chairs in the, uh, in the industry. The development executives, they might be there for a year or two, then they leave. So there's such switching around that if you met somebody early in their career as a grip or something, uh, he might end up being a, an executive somewhere. Uh, 
there is one guy who started out as a, a Cary Grant. It started out as a PA. And now I think he's head, he's like CEO of, what's that company? I'm so bad at remembering stuff. Um, it's in Texas now, big, big company. Sure. Uh, and, and so you never know all these people. And we, we just had the other day, uh, RPA, we're telling stories about people that just are in the room. And if you're in the room and they say, hey, look, we need somebody to, to write this. Okay, you come over here. You're a writer. Done. Write this. It happens. So, but I guess in your industry, it's not. It's, it's, it's more stable. So if you get a position, you work there for years. Here, you get a position, you might be there for a year or two, you move on to something else. You move on to something else. You just, you just People cherry pick and move around so much that there is a better opportunity to meet people, network through this complicated network of contacts, and then have your name mentioned somewhere down the line as a recommendation for something. We do it all the time. People see, call see, us. That's, that's so funny because networking, like um, you, you go to conference and conferences and stuff, but it's so hard to meet people because nobody wants to network because there's no point really because you go to the same job. You could be there for life if you want and you know the same, I don't know, 50 people in your office. You never have to talk to anybody else. You have like this very daily routine. And yeah, I just remember going to like a big conference in uh, Ohio uh, by myself when I was when I was at the software company. And I was like excited to meet people, but like everybody's just there to like just get some info and go home at the end of the day. They don't they don't really care. <laughs> so I mean, obviously, it's not always like that. That's that's maybe a bad example because there are like there are a lot of great things that you get out of conferences and networking and stuff. But it's completely opposite. Like with this podcast, I absolutely love talking to people like you because it's like I've never met this person before they've worked on all these cool things that I know about and now I like feel like we have like I know who you are it's great <laughs> it's really funny here you go to any event everybody's trying to sell you something everybody's oh got an idea everybody has a couple of scripts under their belt I mean every waiter and waitress in Los Angeles is not just an actor they're they're writers they're directors they just everybody wants to do it it's that's what's cool about this but but it's it's not just the business network. It's also just a social network, too. I never realized how just going to screenings, going to showcases, going to galleries and premieres, any industry endeavor is important uh, because you meet people, let's say, in a more social environment and you get to know them outside, let's say, the, the, the business, let's say, and you meet people. But you find out that your neighbor don't yell at them for their dog barking because he could be an executive producer that you want to link up. Don't flip somebody off while you're driving because you might go into a meeting that you're pitching and that's the guy. It is that, that homogenous. So you save all your, uh, your fueled up anger for your brothers, I guess. <laughs> Absolutely. I know that. Because you can't take it out. <laughs> so it, that's, that's interesting. So uh, where do you live, I guess, on a regular basis? Like for me, I've spent the last uh eight years living in toronto just because that's where i've i've worked at. like i've moved i've moved twice because just because i wanted to upgrade my place a little bit and move closer to where i work so for you are you all over the place Do you have a home base but I, I have a home yeah um i mean we moved here in 80 um well really i got married and had children so i have a house and i live in studio city studio city of all places really nice place in the in the valley uh, and yeah, I've moved, uh, yeah, I, I had a condo and then a home. I lived in lofts, in studios, like bohemian type stuff. That's what all the young people do now. Even downtown, it's like that again. My son is living in a loft. 
It's by necessity. Have you ever been at a restaurant and somebody's like, oh my gosh, that's Stephen Kiyoto, I'm going to pitch him? Nobody, I get emails about pitches and we can't accept them. But it was really funny. I was in a, I was going to the movie theater and I was waiting in line at a theater. And this young kid comes up to me and goes, and he knew me. And I said, well, who are you? And he said, he, I guess he saw me on a, um, on the bonus material on, on a Team America DVD. And it was an interview and he recognized me. Wow. Kind of funny to be recognized, you know, from, from Team America. So yeah, it's it's a very close knit. It's just like Washington D.C. centered solely around politics, <coughs> this town centers solely around entertainment, television, motion pictures, and 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 the likes. So everybody here is kind of of the same mind. And I never realized. Interesting, you know, being married and having kids. Um, the social aspect of getting into the industry. I think our business kind of went down because all the brothers had families at the same time. So I didn't focus as much time and effort into the business. I focused more on the family. And I think there was a lull in what we were doing. We were moving more and more up and up and up, getting bigger and better gigs. When we had our family, our family was more important. And we just kind of, not didn't neglect it, but we didn't focus in as much. And then when the boys got, I have two boys, when they got older, you know, I got back into the business more, you know, and more socializing, more just attending events and being out there more. So your name gets kind of bantied around more. You're more of a player in other people's minds and you just get more work. So that, that's a component. That's what I would tell people. Become, uh, you know, like the guys that open the portal, they put on events, they put on seminars, they do showcases. And all it does is bring in talented people and they mix and they talk and they collaborate. It's a real melting pot of ideas, and that's what you want. You want to be a part of something like that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I totally, I totally get that. Um, I some one of my classmates, there's a there's like a conference coming up, and they're like, "What well, should I go to this? Like, what am I going to get out of that?" And it's like, just go and show up, and don't expect anything. You're going to get more than you hope for. <laughs> oh, that's it. That that's a that's a good uh, a good recommendation. Uh, this podcast actually started because I met uh, Fred uh, Seibert at uh, a Taffy conference, Toronto Animation uh, Arts Festival International. Um, I just walked up to him and was just chatting with him. And I was like, hey, do you want to be on a podcast? And he's like, sure. And I was like, now I got to go make a podcast. <laughs> no, that, that's it exactly. That's it exactly. You'd be surprised. Uh, and isn't there a stop motion festival of some kind in Montreal? Yeah, there is. It's coming up. Yeah. Coming up. Yeah. Yeah. So I've, I've actually never made it out there because I haven't been out of Ontario much, but I do want to go. So we'll see. you should go. I'm telling you. I go. Know. I know. <laughs> yeah. I wish I could. Um, I, I'd love to go. Okay, fly down. We'll go together. How about that? <laughs> um, I have a maybe maybe you don't have to answer this, but just while you were talking about jumping around a lot, um, something that I've been interested right now in is just because uh, I guess the pay rates were just published for animators, like updated or something. So I've been seeing that being shared on social media and stuff. Um, when you're jumping around to different projects, like working on like, I don't know, building a giant rolling critter ball here and like working on the Team America puppets and like working on the elf set, are you always, is are you always like negotiating contracts everywhere you go? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a, whether you, if you're contracting a larger job, it's negotiating all of the elements that make the job what you're responsible for. There's a budget. <clears throat> and as you're going out as an individual, yeah, you negotiate your pay rate. And it's based on, on uh, 
on the amount of time you're committed to. I mean, some people are sculptors or, or they, they build things. So it's like, okay, how many hours is it going to take you to do this? And then how much do you want per hour? Then how much materials? And then how much of a contingency do you want to put on it? It's like creating your own budget. Uh, and a lot of artists aren't really business people. So how do you approach budgeting, let's say a subcontract job, doing a puppet, building a puppet for somebody else for their production? That's one way to get into the industry, being a puppet builder or a fabricator, a model maker. Um, and uh, uh, most students don't have that kind of expertise. And you go out there. So, there, so there's some kind of a, a list of a, a, a price list of animators. What will they make nowadays? <laughs> I have to I have to look at it. Yeah. It's like from what I've seen, it's like they, it's like here's the weekly pay. And it's like each type of specialized job you could do, like animator, storyboard artist, whatever. It's, mm. uh, I guess, because of the union. Down. Like here in here in Canada, we don't we're not unionized or anything. So I guess I don't know. I don't work in the industry, but I'm guessing it's just like here's here's what an entry level makes at this company, and you kind of take it. So I, what are some of the pieces of advice you give to your students when they're negotiating or they're presented with a contract? Like you said, like if they're going out and getting materials, like I don't know about benefits, like all these other things, right? Yeah, it's mostly a freelance business there. And there's no unions that are really protecting a lot of the work that stop motion people do. It's a mm -hmm. props union, but I don't think they're really involved in what we do in, in stop motion. Yeah, I um, think it's more for 2D, 2D animation. And yeah, stuff I, like I think so. Uh, well, you know, it, it's so diverse, it's hard to say. Uh, if it's a job you really want, you know, something like a group of people you, you want to move in with and, 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 and prosper with, then you negotiate. Um, yeah. If it's a job that's just going to be just work to make a living, then you, you, you say, I want this. You might want 20 bucks an hour, 25, 30 bucks an hour to do something. And you say, okay, it's going to take me, you know, 100 hours to do this. And you just price it out. And then if you're responsible for materials, yeah, he's, it, it is. And it's delivery. Yeah, there's so many things. You've got to come up with your deal memo, which is going to be what your deliverables are. You have to state that and define it because when you build something, so many producers will say, hey, well, you'll build a puppet, all right? And then you'll say, he'll say, well, can you make the eyes blink? Yeah, you can, but that costs more money. And the bid you gave didn't include eye blinks. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> then, uh, okay, can it, can it do this? We want to have, have four arms now. Well, wait a second. The original bid was for two arms now. Yeah, I can do four arms, but now that's increase. So you have to really define what the deliverables are so yeah. that they're defined so that they can't change it. And, yeah, and then the payment schedule. You want a certain amount of money up front. Certain amount, of, certain amount of money halfway through and then a final payment of, let's say, a smaller amount so that you're not financing the fabrication, that they are, in fact, using their money financing the fabrication of whatever you're doing. When it comes down to labor, if you're being hired as an animator, just the terms. How many hours a day are you working? You could work for an hourly with time and a half for over eight hours, or you could work for a flat Meaning that, okay, you're working for X amount of dollars per week on a flat 40 or 50 hours a week. And you negotiate that with the producer. Does it ever get easier? No, never does. No, no it's what? always, you'll have people that either want to, I won't say take advantage, I'll say they don't have a lot of money. And they're trying to do something ambitious. So what they try to do is get people to work for the least amount they can so they can get the biggest bang for the buck. It's really a, 
it's not an evil intention as much as just that's what their their money can afford. Then you have people that have a lot of money, and you know they can afford paying you what you ask. It's all about negotiation, and when it comes down to it, the end is: Do you like the project uh, well enough to work for, let's say, below what you want? You know, will the will what you're doing for this job advance your career in a direction that's more advantageous? So you'll take a bit of a pay cut. And do you like the people? That's the other thing too. You're going to be working intimately with these people. If you find out that you know you don't really like the idea, you don't really like the people, then yeah, you'll do it for money because you need to earn a living. It's how people make a living. Very uh, but if it's a job that you really love and you're really excited creatively, yeah, okay, you know what? You reduce your rate because you really you're into it. it, it there's no rules. It's really based on your how, how you approach it, how you feel about it. Have you ever made any big mistakes that you wish you uh, didn't make in in negotiating a project? Oh yeah, yeah. There are things. There are things you, with as much negotiation you do in the beginning, like I'm telling you, make sure you define the deliverables. Very often, yeah, you're not defined as much, and then it's like, oh, you didn't understand, so we have to write things down. So sometimes, the producer might think, oh no, I thought we were paying for this, and you say, no, no, it never was the intention. Well, that was why I I understood that, and you're in the middle of a production. It has to be done, so you negotiate. The bigger the budget, it seems, the better it is. There was one job we did, Dinner for Schmucks, it was really great. We made the miniature mouse dioramas, yeah. that Steve Carell film. That's another great project, really great, great project. Jay Roach was great, the whole crew was great, the producers were wonderful. So there was one, one gag was that we had to build these miniatures as part of the character's portfolio. So we photographed it, made prints, and put it in his portfolio. It was done. And then... We were told, oh, no, no, the mouse in that has to have a dicky. He has to have a dicky as a costume. That's his character. So we said, well, we have to do it over again. So it's going to cost. And they said, how much is it going to cost? And we said, this amount. They said, okay. So without any quibbling, they realized it was an addition. It was uh, an error that they made. So we set it up, put the dicky on the character, photographed it, delivered it. Then they said, they, I guess they were still developing the character. Oh, no, he has a mustache. <laughs> so in hindsight I would have done some photoshop and put the mustache on yes. we shot it again we set it up made the mouse and, uh, and they paid for that too because I think they had the money it was a, a, a really it was a full fledged big production and they did it and they were really great Jay Roach the whole entire creative team just great great people uh, but then there were other productions where they don't have any money. And it might be creatively they want to do something more that they didn't understand. And they say, hey, guys, can you do this? And for us, we're part of the team. We're there to make a film. And as, you know, as filmmakers, I think that might be um, a leg up that we have. I think most effects companies are filmmakers anyway. And they get jazzed about making the film, not just making the prop. So if they say, hey, can we make the eyes blink? We go, yeah, yeah, we can do that because it's part of our process is putting the guy on for a couple of extra hours. He'll do it. It doesn't really cost us that much more. We absorb the cost. And I think that's the kind of cooperation that kind of builds relationships because if you say no, 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 no to somebody, a producer, they'll remember that. And they'll go with the person that when they ask for these extra little bells and whistles that said yes, 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 
that's more cooperation. It's a better relationship. And he'll remember you and he'll say, you know what? These guys are really great. You know, they work with you. Um, yeah. So that's part of the relationship. It's part of the working relationship. And, and uh, so I can't think of too many bad. I think we're not the best businessmen in that respect, that if they want something, we see that, oh, yeah, we're jazz. We see it's better and we do it. Unless it's, unless it's just impossible. But we have had some impossible jobs that were just not going to happen the way they thought it was going to happen. And we try our best saying, guys, you know what? This is what's going to happen. We've done this before. And we don't want to be naysayers, but we don't want to kind of, you know, yeah. pump them up with possibilities that won't happen. And then they have to compromise, too. They learn. A lot of producers think you can do everything. But no, everything has limitations, and you have to kind of work around it. That's why we do multiple techniques. Stop motion is not the answer for everybody. It's more like a post-production technique. But some people want to shoot things live and direct things live on stage with performers. So then it's puppets or it's costume characters with animatronics. So you kind of organize how you, yeah. working with the director and the producers, how do you want to bring this character to life in your production? You know, it sounds like to me that that's also why you've been able to work on so many different projects. Like if you put yourself in a stop motion only corner, uh, you might have only worked on like one third or a smaller percent of the things that you've worked on, you know? No, that, that's it exactly. A lot of people want to start stop motion companies and we kind of say, well, you know, we've been around because we just didn't do stop motion. We were vi uh, viable because of that. Yeah. But now, now stop motion is becoming more of an accepted technique. I think the advent of technology, the digital cameras and uh, uh, Jamie Caleri's Dragon Frame software. Yes. I mean, that is been, it's that. an industry standard. And uh, I just spoke to Jamie the other day. Um, it's, it's a thriving business for him. And I think that technology, that frame grabber, that able to onion skin, really helped stop motion become more of a viable production technique. And now it's taking off like never before. In all of my years of doing stop motion, I've never seen so much production than right now. You've got four or five feature films being produced, commercials all over the place. Um, it's really thriving. So I would say it is more of an industry than it ever was before as far as um, going to school for it because it, uh, you know, every, every technique has its ups and downs and cycles. I think we're at the, at a pinnacle of stop motion right now. It'll probably go down a little bit, but I think it's going to have a medium plateau that'll always be around as a viable storytelling technique. So it is an industry you can get into now as a profession with as much reliability as any profession nowadays anyway. I'll tell you this, it won't be taken away from by computers because there's something innately real about stop motion that computers won't. I have this little saying, no matter how the real stop, uh, computers are, it's fake. And no matter how fake stop motion is, it's real. Yeah. And you can't take that away. It, it, it's just, it is a tangible physical object that you're photographing. And no matter how much magic you put into it by making it come alive through stop motion, it still is perceived as this inanimate object coming alive. It really is magic. It's magic. And CG is cool, but not as magical. Well, one day when we're living in the matrix, then, uh, then what? <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. But I totally, well, that's what I love about it too, because you can, you can literally take any object and make it come alive in, yeah. in a surprising way that nobody thought of before. So yeah. Oh, that's it. Yeah. And now um, it's a tool. It's a tool that everybody has now. You yeah. could, uh, you can animate with your, your cell phone, you know? Oh yeah. 
It's and insane you, the amount of people I follow on Instagram that have just popped up in like the last six months and all they're doing is exactly what you said, yeah. filming something on their desk with their cell phone and it's, and it's incredible. You don't, you, don't need any, you don't need any background to get started at all. Like you don't have to understand crazy animation principles. You just have to be alive, <laughs> basically. You have 2K images too. I mean, it's like, it's, yeah. it's really great. Um, so, well, thinking about like all the projects and how you're, you've been so malleable over the years, what is what is your like ultimate dream of a project? Like you loved monster movies as a kid, you've made a couple and you've made a lot of monster props. Like, is there, is there like a, is there like this ultimate monster thing in your mind that you'd love to export into the world? Oh yeah. Oh God, I, we have ideas. I've got tons of ideas. What's one of the what's the what's what's one of them that you you want to work on? Uh, I'm just curious as to what the the like raw Stephen wants. <laughs> it's 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 not so much focused on monsters. I guess it's just fantasy and comedy. I mean, like Killer Clowns to us was a mashup of two things. We you know, I, one thing I hate. Oh well, the circus is fascinating and scary for me, and sci-fi. So we've kind of put those two things together. <laughs> um, Alien Christmas. It's holidays and aliens put together. It's like a sci-fi mashup of a holiday special. So it's that kind of kind of stuff that we do. Uh, uh, we, we have an idea called the Italian Odyssey. Big, big epic. We would, didn't want to write something really small. We want to write a big epic stuff. And it's the story of Christopher Columbus's younger brother, Vito, who goes out and proves the world is flat. And it's a story about the, uh, the, the, uh, the time, the age when there was a flat world. And all the myths and legends of the flat world are true. You can you can sail off the world, and in the in the in the prospect, uh, it's sort of like a Ray Harryhausen adventure with Italians. So it's like a comedy adventure. Oh my gosh! And they go all over the flat world, and it has the most incredible ending. Um, that's something we want to do. And now, it's it was too big. We we're going to do it like a Ray Harryhausen film with comedy. And it got really kind of expensive. So now I think as a CG film, it could be something kind of producible now. It's epic. And then there's something called interdimensional safari, where these guys build some kind of a rig where they can go into other dimensions and they have big game hunters hunting these animals. It's about ecology and, and stuff like that. And there's another thing called Channel 8 from Outer Space about a little planetoid space station, like a TV station, and they steal signals from all over the universe and they broadcast it to Earth. So it's sort of like a compilation of alien... TV shows. That, oh my uh, gosh, broadcast. that's so fun. <laughs> uh, there's there's a, a bunch. We have a thing called Africa Danny about a young African boy. Uh, it's sort of like the Jungle Book, but in Africa. He has friends with all these animals and his adventures. And it's a stop motion type idea. Yeah. Uh, no, it's just all of these really cool things. Aliens. Do you, do you feel like you get some relief when you work on a really cool project creatively? Like, it sounds like you've been developing these ideas over years almost. Mm. We have a long list of ideas. I mean, if you read any biography of any of these filmmakers, like uh, Willis O'Brien, who like was, uh, I, I find, he's like a big mentor to me as far as his stuff, King Kong and all of the work he did. If you read his biography, there's uh, a list of tons of ideas he had that he was pitching that never got fulfilled. Ray Harryhausen, another icon yeah. in, in stop motion. You read his book, tons of ideas, just ideas of, of stories that he wanted to tell that never gets produced. I think all of us have that. 
you know, I look at the world around me and all I do is kind of tweak the world. The world is kind of boring, so I'll go down to the ocean and I'll see a plesiosaurus kind of raise its head gracefully out of the water. I just see things that aren't there. And that's the inspiration. I take the real world. Instead of creating a fantasy world that's 100% fantasy, what I like to do is take our world and put in like 10% fantasy. So fantasy is part of our real world. So I turn the corner downtown and I always see a, a dinosaur with a cop in his mouth coming around the corner. I just see all these fantastic things and I want to, that's the world I want to create. I love that. Um, that kind of reminds me, I was taking the train to go downtown Toronto uh, during like rush hour the other day. And I've, I've been in school for this past year, like basically living in a fantasy creative world with classmates and you're just coming up with creative ideas and drawing all the time, right? And so I took this train during rush hour and it's like business people, silence, completely full. Everybody's looking at their phones. It was just so like I used to be part of that world, but it's just so surreal. Like it, it's not like everyday life is kind of boring, you know? So okay. I like I like the I like t the tweak idea. That's that's really good. I like that Yeah. So you look at those people and you know that they're quiet and they're boring. But then you say, what if? What if it, 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 that? What is that guy thinking? And what if he was doing it unconsciously? Starts doing what he's thinking, and you see what all those different people, what their lives are really like in that train, it would make it much more interesting than a boring train ride. Uh, yeah, yeah. That that's how my mind works. The what if scenario. What if this happened? Something completely opposite of what you would expect is always where a good story starts. Yeah, well, react. that's true. That's how every story, a good story, starts. I think about like. When I when I see those people, they're all on their phones and they're all they're all living in their own fantasy worlds anyways. One person's looking at sports, another person's looking at a show or whatever. And like part of the reason why I want to do this is I want to keep that keep that going for a lot of people, I guess you could say. I want to create something that people kind of, it takes them out of the the monotony of of what they're doing or whatnot. So Oh yeah, yeah. That that it's inspired. So I mean you're a storyteller, right? You you have stories you want to tell. Oh yeah. Oh yes. <laughs> yeah. Lots. I actually wrote a novel in my spare time, a fantasy novel, uh, a couple of years ago. So I would love to, it, it started off as a film idea that I just wasn't working on films at the time. So I just kept writing it down until it turned into this gigantic piece. So I would love to turn that into a film one day. That's, that's like a dream of mine. So yeah. 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 Um, I have a lot of other questions, but I feel like you've answered them. Like I had questions written down. I feel like you've answered them like behind the scenes stuff. And so um, why don't we just kind of wrap things up? I know we've been chatting for a while. Um, I already know what's next for you. You're working on the Netflix, uh, the Netflix special with the alien Christmas. That's amazing. But um, is what advice, I guess, because you teach a lot of students and you've seen a lot of people come and go, I guess, and get their start in the industry. For those listening who might be, you know, in school or, or starting out or trying to get the confidence to, to do what they want to do, what, what advice would you, uh, would you give them based on your career? Oh, advice. And it would sound so pompous to make any kind of a statement. Well, um, you know, I, just like from your experience, what, what is something good to know? I guess it's, you know, it, um, being lucky enough to find your passion to know that there's just something you want to do, no matter what obstacles are in your way, you just keep on going and doing it. That's what I see out here too. The people that do make it, they were just so focused on just doing this one thing. Uh, very often, you know, there'll be tons of obstacles in your way and that stops a lot of people. You don't know how to, to overcome that obstacle. 
you go around it. You don't let those things stop you. You know, this alien Christmas, you were pitching for 15 years. The Italian Odyssey, since 1990, we were pitching it. It comes close, then it goes away. Then it comes close, it goes away. And, and you say, oh, it's the idea. The idea is not good. No, it's not the idea that's bad. It's just you didn't pitch it to the right people. You didn't get the right collection of people. I kind of get the idea. The moment's not right. The finances aren't there. There's always a reason, but none of them you should take as a dead end. You should always, any obstacle, you figure out what the obstacle is, and you work your way around it, keeping your goal in mind. And that, that's it. Um, yeah. I think if I look at what we've done as a company, myself as an individual, that's how I've done it. Um, it's being stupid, I guess. You know, there's so many obstacles in your way. It's like impossible to get this thing done, to get this thing to those people. But you do it anyway. I can't believe that even if being in the industry as long as we've been in, that we still have this naivete, this passion that we're going to get it, that it's going to happen. Oh, it's going to be because we're closer than we've ever been before. That's my philosophy. Yeah, 10 years ago, we weren't at this level. But now we're, it, 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 it's, it's more likely we could do it now because we have this. So it's, with each year, you're, you're getting closer to it. So the possibilities are better. Just don't let it get you down. That's it. Uh, I think that's great. And just hearing that myself, like I'm already reflecting on why I've chosen this path because I just couldn't get away from it inside of me and so now i'm just going full force so that's good for me to hear too no so, i think it would be i think this podcast is great too because you could then um talk to different people give mick garris a call he's a great guy he loves to talk he's got great great stories i will <laughs> uh he's great and 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 all the people i mentioned give them a call it, it's uh and, I've uh, written them all down, so yeah. I, I mean, I usually write everybody down and reach out to them all, but you know, not everybody gets back, which is fine. Um, but yeah, and I, I very, very much appreciate you coming on the podcast and, and sharing so openly all your thoughts and, and everything. This, is, this has been great. Is there anything else you wanted to share? Um, uh, no, I would want to ask you. If I say anything stupid, please edit it out, all right? Well, let's, this podcast is still going. Do you want me to? I haven't said goodbye yet. Do you want me to edit that out? Uh, no, I don't know. No, that's cool. Cool. It is, this, this is me. All my uh, for better or for worse. <laughs> well, well, then, then I guess let's just wrap it up. Again, thank okay. you so much. It's been it's been an absolute pleasure meeting you and having you on the podcast. Okay. Well, nice meeting you too. If you're ever in LA, pop on down. We'll give you a big studio tour. Excellent. I would, I would love that. And if you're listening and you want to follow Stephen's work, I'm going to link his Facebook page, which is the Kyoto Brothers, um, in the description of this podcast and also his Vimeo. And you can check out a bunch of his work. And that is all for now. So thanks so much for listening. Okay, bye.